0: All right, as Jeff read, we'll be in Luke chapter 21. I, had, I asked Jeff to read the whole passage, but we definitely won't make it through all of it today. I think we'll make it through verse 24. I want to I wanna lay out the setting of the whole passage, though, just so we kind of have the big picture in mind as we walk through it. And so it might take just a second before we get to the points that I have in your notes. What's going on in our text is that, as you know, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. Uh, He has been interacting with various groups of religious leaders that want to undermine him. And in our text this morning, Jesus has left the the temple grounds. He's gone across the the, the valley there below Jerusalem and has gone up another mountain there called the Mount of Olives or Olivet. And from that other mountain, you can can look across and you can see the temple. And so Jesus is gathered there with His disciples. And while they're on this Mount of Olives, some of the disciples begin speaking of the temple. And in our text, we even see this this glorious structure, this beautiful building. It was adorned, verse 5 tells us, with noble stones and, and offerings, you know, his historical records tell us that Herod the Great had actually began remodeling and updating the temple even decades before Christ and this project went on for a long time. Herod was responsible for kind of even expanding the footprint of the temple. He had built these magnificent white marble walls for the temple. You know, gold and silver were melted down to coat gates and and doors. And one historian said, you know, as you as you looked out across the temple, it would just shine like a snow capped peak in the sun. That's the way this temple was described. Tacitus, who was sort of a contemporary Roman historian during the time of the temple, he called it immensely opulent. It's tragic that. These renovations went all the way up to like 63, 64 A.D., just a few years before the temple would be completely destroyed in the year 70 A.D. And so as the disciples are looking out and they're noticing the temple, Jesus tells them that this structure will actually be destroyed. It's beautiful, but it's going to come toppling down. And that's what Jesus predicts in our text there in verse Six, the days will come when there will not be one stone left upon another. Now clearly this would be very, very difficult for a Jewish person to imagine. It would be, you know, they're looking at this beautiful structure and Jesus says there's not going to be one stone left. It would be like you in, in maybe the year 2000 standing in New York City and somebody points to the Twin Towers and say, you know, there's not going to be anything left of those. But even that little illustration fails to to fully grasp the immensity of what Jesus is saying because the World Trade Centers for us don't represent like the center of our religious life and the very presence of God. And that's what the temple was for Israel. And so this prompts a couple questions from the disciples there in verse seven. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And so Jesus' answer then is what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. Now what makes this section difficult, and I think we should be honest that this is a, a difficult text to interpret, what makes it difficult is that Jesus seems to take up events, some of which were fulfilled within just a few decades of his life, and some of which, even from our vantage point 2,000 years later, seem to be yet future. So this makes the text hard to understand. Not only that, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tend to kind of highlight or emphasize different details of this one discourse. Matthew and Mark seem to be looking forward more than Luke does. Luke tends to focus on the more immediate, the nearer fulfillment of the the, the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. You see that in the fact that Luke actually lacks a lot of the apocalyptic language that is contained in the other gospels, particularly Matthew and Mark, who again, they tend to be, seem to be looking further Luke seems to be focusing on more immediate events. And this really does fit the context of Luke well, as what has he been dealing with for the last several uh, paragraphs. The rejection of Israel. They failed to see their Messiah. They failed to recognize him as their king. And this has been particularly clear because even the leadership in Israel has failed to see Christ for who he is. So, as we kind of think about these three different gospels, you have the same, you have one discourse from Jesus, all being faithful to the words of Christ, but I would say emphasizing complementary aspects of Jesus' message. All right, so if that's true, here's how I think we ought to understand the words of Christ in Luke or the Olivet discourse the judgment that's going to fall on Jerusalem becomes a type and a pattern for the final days when God will pour out His wrath on the unbelieving world, leading up to and including the return of Christ. So I think we should understand our text as sort of a a preview or a type. The wrath poured out on Israel is a picture of the wrath to be poured out on the world at the judgment. And I think these these two topics are kind of taken up together by Jesus because they're related. The wrath on Jerusalem, the wrath on the world, because both times are, are times of immense judgment. And Jesus wants to ensure His disciples that both of these events are part of God's sovereign orchestration of His plan, His plan for salvation. All right, so one of the reasons I speak about Luke kind of taking up various topics here, is that it becomes clear in our text that even in Luke, he's talking about near and far events. So what I want to do is kind of zoom out on our text. I know this is the longest introduction I've ever done. I'm sorry, but I want to sort of zoom out on our text and give us the big picture, right? We saw that Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple The disciples ask, when the temple will be overthrown? And Jesus answers, well, there's certain things that will precede even the overthrowing of the temple. They will precede the judgment, but these things are not necessarily signs of the coming judgment. He mentions, we'll, we'll see in a minute, false messiahs, wars, famines, signs from heaven, earthquakes, these sorts of things, persecutions. It's not until actually verse 20 that Jesus gives them the answer. The judgment will fall on Israel, or they will know that the, that the judgment is near when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. That'll be the sign. That's when you'll be able to know. And this will result in a terrible time of suffering, and Jerusalem will fall. And it, it, it sort of ushers in this time that Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles, you can see that in verse 24. And here's how I think Luke gives us really clearly. He's talking about 70 AD, fall of the temple, then it's this time of the Gentiles. And then verse 25, it's the return of Christ. Right? Look there in verse at the end of verse 24. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It ushers in this time of Gentile domination. Then you get in that sort of an unspecified time. Then you get to the return of Christ there in verse 25, where the the emphasis shifts from not just judgment on Israel, but to the judgment on the whole world. All right. The next week we'll look more at Jesus sort of applies it in verses 29 through 33, basically says, believe it. And then in verses 34 through 38, now live a watchful life in light of the return of Jesus. All right. So hopefully that overview is helpful as we kind of walk through this text over the next couple of weeks. Keep that in your mind as we walk through the passage. All right, so let's think about this. Point number one this morning is events that precede the end. And that's chapter, verses 5 all the way through verse 19. So the question is, what can the disciples, the immediate context, right? What can the disciples expect prior to the fall of Jerusalem? And if sort of our interpretive grid is correct, if we are right to take the text as a type of events to come, we might ask this, what can we expect? I think it's appropriate for us to apply the text this way. What can we expect before the return of Christ? What can the disciples expect prior to the fall of Jerusalem? What can we expect prior to our end, the return of Christ? One thing Jesus says is these false messiahs. Jesus warns that there will be many who will claim to be the Messiah and that they have actually returned and that they are the ones who are going to kind of usher in this messianic age and they'll be the king that's going to rule on the throne of David. And we could actually go back and kind of look at examples in history that would be fun and interesting, but the more important thing in our text is it's sort of building to the actual real return of Christ in verse 25, where Jesus says, "No, the, the sun's going to be turned off, the moon's going to be darkened, the stars are going to fall. You're not going to have to wonder like, is that guy in Dallas the Messiah? I heard something about him, right? Jesus will come in power and great glory on the clouds, and Revelation tells us every eye will see him. So Jesus's warning is, don't be led astray by these false Christs, these false messiahs another thing that he says will sort of characterize this time is wars there will be wars and tumults he says nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom notice what jesus says there in verse 9 but the end will not be at once right these things must first take place but the end will not be at once now when we hear at once we might think like we might think like at one time but it really means like immediately following. Right he is saying that these things that he mentioned these wars these false messiahs these are not necessarily the signs of the coming judgment. Right again the coming judgment on Jerusalem or the coming judgment on this world. Creation he says will will groan during this time. There'll be earthquakes and Famines and plagues, that word terrors means like anything that just brings fear upon your hearts. He says there will be heavenly signs. These might be things like comets or eclipses, as well as uh, we, we might even think about weather phenomena, uh, tornadoes and things that come down, hailstorms, things that fall from the sky. And he says that even these things are things that are going to precede. These are things that will happen. He's telling his disciples, these are things that will happen prior to the end. These calamities, he says, must precede the day of judgment for Israel. And more importantly, these are not to be understood as like, oh, the end is close because we just felt a tremor. Right? He says the end will not be at once. I think one thing that Jesus is discouraging the disciples to do is to try to like pinpoint a day or hour when the temple will be destroyed based on newspaper headlines. right? And for us, I would say we too should not be drawn away by trying to discern the day or the hour when Christ will return. Again, when we preach the Bible here, we want to preach from the Bible, not, not the newspaper, not current events. Right? I appreciated Jeff's prayer for Israel. Of course, we've all seen, seen the news, what terrible news it is, and you've got people that deny the reality of some of these atrocities, so then what do they have to do? Well, let's produce the evidence to prove you. And you've just maybe seen just things you never want to see, things you, you wish you never had seen. And we should pray for Israel and long for justice to be done but I don't think we should try to read into this some prophetic meaning, right? I think the goal of the text is that we would live faithful lives in light of the the hope that we have, the certain reality that Jesus is coming back, right? So we don't want to get drawn away necessarily from this truth by current events, Right? Some of you probably remember when Robert F. Kennedy was the Antichrist, right? And he was, he was the first Roman Catholic president. So he's going to do the bidding of the Pope. And then uh, maybe from the other direction, other people were saying, well, I think Ronald Wilson Reagan was the, pre- the Antichrist because six letters in each of his three names six, six, six. Right? I've told you guys. Before, about the time we had, we had this guy coming to speak at our church, and he, he was going to speak on end times, and he says something like, you know, if you take the sixth letter of every second chapter in the book of Exodus, you know what you get? And he spells out Kissinger, Henry Kissinger. He's been back in the news, right? But thank the Lord, we were all dying as pastors. But then he said, uh, you know what that means? Absolutely nothing and we all breathe a sigh of relief. All right, I'm not trying to be rude or flippant, but I do appreciate the sarcasm of a quote that I first heard attributed to Mark Twain, which I can't even find anywhere where he said this, so I don't know where it came from, but he says, fewer than half the predictions of the end of the world have ever worked out. All right, so we want to be careful, right, not to get drawn away by current events, not to get drawn away by headlines. Instead, what what Jesus focuses on here, instead of seeking to figure out how this earthquake fits into some kind of timeline, we ought to prepare ourselves instead to suffer at the hands of those who are opposed to Christ. All right, we ought to prepare ourselves to suffer at the hands of those who are opposed to Christ. And that's where Jesus goes next. He goes to Persecution there in verse 12. Even before the earthquakes and the terrors and the cosmic signs, they will lay their hands on you there in verse 12 and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Jesus, again, telling His disciples they will be seized, they will be interrogated, they will be thrown into prison. And some of them will be put to death. And he says that this persecution is going to come from, from three, primarily three sources. One, he says, your fellow Israelites are going to persecute you. That's what he's telling the disciples. And all you have to do, remember, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And so he makes this connection really clear. All you have to do is read the book of Acts to see this come to fruition. Peter and John are in prison in Acts chapter 4 for performing Miracles and preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, it just says the apostles were thrown in prison. Stephen is falsely accused, put on a sham trial, and stoned to death. Of course, the apostle Paul sort of ends up on both sides of this persecution. He goes from persecutor of the church to the one who is being persecuted. So they would suffer persecution from fellow Israelites. But it's not just Israel that would bring about persecution. It's also from the other side as well. These Gentile rulers, kings and governors there in verse 12. It wouldn't just be Israelites who want to snuff out the name of Christ and punish his followers. The Gentile rulers would join in, charging Christians with upsetting the public, subverting the law. Again, you can just read the book of Acts and see Paul before all kinds of rulers and kings. And again, we're suggesting that this is going to be the, the state of the church uh, during this time, the times of the Gentiles. Right? So we might point out that even today, even this day, many churches around the world are meeting in secret, knowing that their government provi- pro- prohibits them does not permit them to gather and to worship Christ the way we get to this morning there's a third place that persecution will will arise from Jesus says and that's parents brothers relatives and friends for many for many allegiance to Christ would cost them their family right that's that's hard for us to to grapple with. Some in this room may have walked through that, but many of us came to Christ and our family was like, okay, right, not, not, not persecuting us, not kicking us out of the family. But Jesus has already warned about this. Earlier in Luke, He says that the, the gospel and allegiance to Him is so powerful that it will actually divide families. You'll have sons against their, their fathers and fathers against their sons. Even as Jesus is speaking, Judas is beginning to plot his betrayal of Christ, whom he will call his friend when he betrays him. So if we are right to see the, the, this, again, as a type, and that this will continue throughout sort of the, the, the days of the Gentiles, then we might say this. Persecution has and will characterize the church's existence. Persecution has and will characterize the church's existence. And therefore, I think we can draw encouragement and hope from what Jesus says here about persecution. One thing he says is, you're being persecuted for my name's sake. This actually answers the question for us, when can I label something persecution? When it, Well, the answer is when it is caused by faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to His message, and faithfulness to His will. Right As Christians, we, we bear the message of the gospel, which is a message of love, love for God, for us, that, that creates in us when we turn from our sin and trust in Christ. It creates in us through the power of the Holy Spirit a love for God, and a love for our neighbor, even a love for our enemy. But Jesus says, for my name's sake, you will be hated, you will be persecuted. The world despises disciples because of their commitment to the message of Jesus Christ, the, the exclusive message of Christ, that their salvation and no one else, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And they hate Christ because He's the risen and exalted Savior. So we must then ensure that actually persecution is arising because of faithfulness for Christ, not because we're rude or we're living an unbecoming life or we somehow um, mistreat others and then turn around and have some kind of a conflict saying, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're just rude right? We want to be persecuted for faithfulness for Christ. And there's no amount of being nice that can stop all of that hatred, right? We, I, you know, I used to think, like, if non-Christians are mad at Christians it's because the Christians did something wrong, they're legalistic, they're rude, they're mean, right? So don't hear me saying the other side of that either, that if you're hated, it's because you messed up and you weren't loving. That's just not true. Jesus said, you'll be persecuted for my name's sake because they hate Christ, Also, we see that persecution then in verse 13 becomes an opportunity to bear witness to Christ. This will be your opportunity, he says, to bear witness. And so when the disciples and others were hauled before the authorities, they had an opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ. The apostles, again, you can read in the book of Acts, took took advantage of many of these opportunities before religious and civil leaders to share the hope of the resurrection of Christ whether it be Jewish leaders, whether it be pagan leaders, they they took advantage of this opportunity. And on these occasions, they were led by the Spirit of God to proclaim Christ. And that's what Jesus says. Actually, the Holy Spirit provides guidance and wisdom in times of persecution. The Holy Spirit provides guidance and wisdom in the midst of persecution. Jesus says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The idea is that the disciples didn't have to rehearse a speech that they could then kind of recall from memory when they stood in front of different crowds, different uh, persecutors, whether they be, again, religious or civil. They would be given the words from God that would silence their opponents. And there's actually a great example of this in Acts chapter 6 uh, with Stephen. It says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They could not withstand his words. They could not withstand his words. Well, we aren't, again, this is going to characterize the church age. So we aren't apostles. Right? But we we are promised and given the Holy Spirit to help us in moments like these. Right? And again, it might seem silly to talk about this stuff, right? We're gathering freely. I don't feel any constraint from the government that I'm gonna be arrested if I say something. So it might seem silly to think about this stuff. Kyle, why are we talking about persecution? Why are you? Why are you trying to comfort us that the Holy Spirit's there when we need it? We live in this country. We've got this long-standing tradition of the separation between church and state, the freedom of religion. It was founded on the strong Christian influences. Well, the reason we need to talk about this stuff is because things can change rather quickly. And we don't want to say, like, when it comes, say, well, I really wish I would have thought about this and heard about it and studied the Bible about it. I remember... There were some Christians here that were visiting one summer from a different country and from Canada. And I said, What if I would have told you, you know, five years ago that what's happening in your country is, is happening? He said, I would have told you, no way. This is Canada, we're free. All right. So that's all I'm saying. It's like we need to think about stuff ahead of time, be prepared so that when the moment comes, we are we're filled with hope. Right? Things can change rather quickly. Persecution arises quickly. Well, what are we called to do? We're, we're called to be ready to give a defense of the hope that we have within us. Right, And that assumes that we're living in such a way that, that people look on our lives, even those, Peter would say, who revile us, look on our lives and say, that person's filled with a certain expectation that I can't understand. Right? If we're going to give an account for the hope that we have, it's because they've seen the hope in us and demand an account from us. We need to live honorably, Peter says, before the Gentiles, so that when they revile you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we can take comfort, and we can, that we can find help from the Holy Spirit in these moments. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be at least controlled by fear. Right? Jesus says, "I'll give you the mouth." Right? You know, if, if these are moments that are fearful to you and, and you wonder about what you would say, I think we can consider what, what God said to Moses, right? And this is the, the Kyle Gangle sarcastic version of the Bible. "I made your mouth. I'm pretty sure I can fill it with words. So we can trust that the Spirit helps us in those moments. Also, Jesus says, They may kill the body, but they cannot touch your soul. Look there in verse 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But, well, we should read even before that. Some of you they will put to death. Verse 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. You'll be hated. For my name's sake, Jesus says, even some of you will die. But then He says something that it's hard to reconcile with that. But not a hair of your head will perish. I think I, I think what Jesus is doing is the context sort of demands us to understand Jesus's words. Not a hair of your head will perish. To be, He's going to protect you even if the result is martyrdom, persecution, or violence towards you, right? In other words, all they can do is kill your body. All they can do is kill you. Or less than that, right? All they can do is hurt your popularity at school. All they can do is mock you. All they can do is call you a hater or a bigot. Right? And I know those things are hard. right? I don't say that's all they can do to mean like, who cares? I remember coming to Christ as a 16-year-old and trying to walk this line of maintaining popularity in school and at the same time trying to be faithful to Christ. Those are, that's a hard thing to do. These, these are hard things to arrive at that point in, in your life. So I don't want to make light of those. But the point that Jesus is making is they are limited in what they can do to you. They cannot ultimately harm. If you've come to Christ, they cannot ultimately harm what is most important about you, your relationship with God through Christ. God will remain faithful. And and for those who've come to Christ, if that's you this morning, if you've turned from sin and trusted in Christ, you're relying on His work, not your own, for your full justification, forgiveness of sins. You are secure in Christ. You are secure in Christ. None of those things that, that, that were mentioned earlier in our text can ultimately harm you. right? Think about the, what Paul says. You'll recognize this text. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, those are things we've been talking about. Will those things, nakedness, danger, or sword, Can those things separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No, nothing in all creation. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. You are secure. They cannot ultimately harm you. So, verse 18 then, so persevere in the faith. So persevere in the faith. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. God will strengthen and fortify His children with His grace to persevere in these trials and these moments. God gives grace to cling to Christ even in the midst of mockery, persecution, and even death. All right, so I'm I'm thankful for this text because I think knowing what to expect in this this age of the church is, is helpful. Right When we're reading... Tragic headlines, when we're seeing war on TV, when we're hearing of natural disasters, whether in our area or across the world, when we think of the church's experience of persecution, knowing that Jesus says this is helpful because it does not indicate in any way that God has somehow forgotten about us or He's somehow lost control and is not sovereignly orchestrating your life and the history of this world. He is sovereignly bringing about His purpose to its appointed end. All right, so point number two then. Events that picture the end in verses 20 to 24. In verse 20, Jesus seems to answer the original question way back up in verse 7. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has... Come near. So these wars, these famines, these plagues, these earthquakes, heavenly signs, persecutions, do not necessarily point to the, the, the immediate destruction of the temple. You know, when you will know, he says, well, it's when you look at Jerusalem, you see it's completely surrounded by armies. And what Jesus speaks, what Jesus speaks to here is a terrible siege on Jerusalem. The enemy will pin the people in, Jesus says. And the people and the the structures both will be raised, right? R A Z E D. Raised, uh, decimated, torn to the ground. Total decimation and destruction. And Jesus says, Then those who are left in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out in the country enter it. If you're in the city, get out, he says. Right? If you're outside the city, don't try to get inside the city. Those walls aren't going to help you for long. That's going to be totally torn down. Go to the mountains. Jesus even speaks of the hardship of pregnant women and mothers of young children. It's going to be a hard time for them because these armies are going to surround Jerusalem the land of Israel will face incredible pressure. All right, I think in verse 23 that ESV says earth it should probably be land, right? Because the parallel is this people, he's still talking about Israel, I believe here. So if the if the parallel is this people, he's probably talking about the land of Israel will face incredible pressure. The NASB got it right, Wayne. So this happened I would say in 70 A.D., when, the, the, when Titus marches on Jerusalem with his army, they built a barricade around the city and launched a brutal five-month siege on the city, eventually leading to every stone being turned over, torn to the ground. One, uh, one historian you may know by the name of Josephus said this. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be objects of their fury, why aren't they slaying or plundering anymore? Well, there's no one to slay, and there's nothing left to plunder. That's what Josephus said. For they would not have spared any had there remained any other such work to be done. Caesar gave orders at that point that they should now demolish the entire city and the temple. All right, so why? Well, Jesus tells us there in verse 22. Why? For these are days of vengeance. For these are days of vengeance. Again, in in the near context, Jerusalem was cut down and the people of Israel were dispersed to other nations as an act of vengeance or an act of wrath for their rebellion and unbelief. Like many nations before them, Rome became the instrument of God's wrath on His people because they failed to recognize Christ. And it's done. It says there in the same verse, 22, to fulfill all that was written. To fulfill all that was written. Well, what that? What might that be? All the things that were written that if, if. Israel would recognize and know Yahweh and obey him. Then they would live long in the land and they would have these blessings poured out on, upon them. Yet if they disobeyed, the curses would fall on them and another nation would come in and drive them out of their land. In fact, when, when Solomon first built the temple, it says in 1 Kings 9, if you obey me, you'll get the blessings. If you disobey, then, then Israel will abandon the Lord in one sense, right? We'll talk about this more in a second and the temple would be destroyed. And that was a warning given to Solomon the, the day the temple was finished. So we have the overthrow of Jerusalem and destruction prophesied by Jesus here, letting the disciples know this is no accident. This is no accident. This terrible moment was the fulfillment of God's warnings to Israel to turn to him and so enjoy the blessings associated with covenant faithfulness. But they did not perceive Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus said it earlier in the Gospel of Luke. You did not recognize the day of your visitation. I came offering myself as Messiah. I visited you from on high, and now you'll be visited with judgment. They did not perceive Jesus as the Messiah. They re- remained in their rebellion. And now in our text, Jesus' is warning of impending judgment. But as we pointed out in, in the overview, this judgment on Israel it has an expiration date, actually. It's right there at the end of verse 24. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for how long? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I think that, that's an important word, right? That word until teaches us a few things. I think first, Jesus wanted the disciples to understand that if they lived long enough to see the temple overthrown, it was not the end of God's plan. It was not the end. This is not the consummation. That's one thing I think Jesus is driving at with his disciples. All right, this is not the consummation. This is not the return of Christ. There's going to be something else that follows this. I think that word until lets us know also that there's going to be an interval of time between what Jesus has been talking about and what he's about to talk about. There's this times of the Gentiles that follow this this prophecy, prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the next thing Jesus is talking about in verse 25 is the return of Christ. We'll... What happens in between? Well, the times of the Gentiles. Now, the disciples, they didn't quite understand. They thought this would be really quick, right? In Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascends, they say, now is it the time, right? The, The Gentiles had their 40 days, Jesus. Can we restore the kingdom? Well, Jesus says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. So this time... I would argue this time we're in now, this time of Gentile domination, it's not only marked by you know, the fact that Jerusalem was trampled underfoot, but it's mar- marked by the preaching of the gospel to all the nations. In Mark's recording of the Olivet Discord, he actually says, but first, the gospel must go to all the nations. Right? So Jesus had come, to institute a better covenant, a new covenant, a covenant that was promised to Israel back in, back in Ezekiel chapter 36, Jeremiah 31. But Israel did not recognize her Messiah. And so the, the gospel, we've talked about this, in light of the rejection of, of Israel, the gospel then goes to the nations. And the mystery of the gospel is that the blessings of the new covenant come to Gentiles, who once were far off, but they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So until, it tells us there's this interval of time between the destruction of the temple and the return of Christ, until it also lets us know that there will be a time coming where Israel will not be tread underfoot. Though there is judgment currently on Israel, There will be a reversal in which they will experience vindication. Israel will be, in other words, to quote Paul, grafted back into the vine. In other words, God has not fully abandoned and finally abandoned his covenant people. There's a temporary hardening upon Israel, Paul says, uh, until, and it sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in right, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Following this time, it seems as if living Israelites on earth, when Jesus returns, are regenerated, brought to life, Romans eleven twenty five 25 through 27, all Israel will be saved. When and how? When the Deliverer comes out of Zion and he banishes ungodliness from Jacob. So until then, it's the times of the Gentiles. So we would say this. This this terror in this section, verses 20 through 24, that falls on Jerusalem then, seems to be used by Matthew and Mark as sort of an example of what the end-time chaos looks like. Right? One commentator said this. What happens to Jerusalem as 70 A.D. approaches will be like the real end, which brings the return of Christ. In the descriptions, Jesus answers the disciples' short-term question about the temple, but He also sets up a long-term discussion about the end. The two events mirror each other in what way? In their terror, this wrath of God, this vengeance that will be poured out in 70 A.D. upon Israel at the return of Christ upon the earth. These things that are described in our passage, such as wars, plagues, and famines, Matthew calls them just sort of the beginning of birth pains that will ramp up. Matthew speaks of a time where there'll be suffering like there's never been suffering in the history of the world. Right? As egregious and terrible as 70 AD was, I don't, I don't know that it's the worst suffering that's ever been experienced, and there'll never be suffering. Ever like it again? So I think it's fair to say the siege pictures the judgment that befalls unbelieving the unbelieving world when Christ returns. The demonstration of the wrath of God will be replicated worldwide on all those who failed to believe. But for those who look to Christ, for those who look to Christ, those who actually are willing to sort of look at this this fierce Judgment, whether it's this passage or others, to look at that and see in light of my own sin, I, I deserve that. And then turn and trust that the, what, what Jesus endured on the cross was actually what I deserve being poured out onto Him, that He became the substitute. Right? If that's, if that's you this morning, you can be comforted that even as we stare at a hard text, that there's not, if Christ is your substitute, there's not one solitary strand of wrath left for you. Christ has borne it all. He has taken it upon himself in his body. And that's what, our, that's what the church is about. That's, what, that's, what, that's the message that we've been given. Now, as we think about our text, with with that hope, with the hope of the work of Christ, even from Luke 21, He's about to do this, this work. He's about to go to the cross and die there with the hope of the gospel. We can have great hope despite the fact that opposition, even persecution, comes up against the church. It's become kind of popular these days to decry that as some kind of weak theology. Some kind of loser theology that the church isn't meant to be persecuted. The church is meant to go Christianize every nation and then we can rule and we can dominate and then one day Jesus will come back to a perfect world. But you know, as I, as I think about that, I think our hope is not in any one nation. Right? Our hope is that God has made His people a holy nation. It is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It is that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise, that He uses the preaching of the gospel, this this message of foolishness to many, to open eyes to the glory of The gospel. Jesus is building his church through the proclamation of the gospel, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of things like martyrdom, and he will come soon. He will come soon for his bride, the church. The last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we have chaos in our own lives and we have chaos in the world and we're so tempted for our eyes to be drawn down. Lord, may we be reminded this morning of your sovereignty and your goodness and your will to bring about your plan for this world. Thank you for Christ. We long for him to come. We long for that day. May he come quickly in Jesus' name, amen.